Welcome back in to the Lions 24-7 podcast. It's our first episode of 2024. Last week came to you. It was our post-game coverage from downtown Atlanta. I was joined by Daniel Gallon for about an hour of conversation following Penn State's 38-25 loss to Ole Miss in the 2023 Peach Bowl. Nittany Lions finishing the season 10-3. and And as we alluded to toward the tail end of that show, each and every year is unique as college football teams go through roster changes, go through staff changes. We saw some of that take place before Penn State even got to its final game of 2023. And now just a few days into the new year, we have some answers about how things are shaping up, departures, additions for this roster. We're going to break down that and a lot more momentarily with Tyler Calvaruso, our resident transfer portal and recruiting expert at lines247.com. A little bit later, we'll have Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallen join me, uh, empty our notebooks a little bit from that week of coverage in Atlanta, uh, wrap our heads around some of the personnel changes that are going on, and also the new coordinators on defense and offense officially underway this week as full-time on the job after they watched some interim uh, approaches take place during the month of December. We had hoped to come to you a little bit earlier here in the week, but uh, aside from this beautiful Yeti mug that's Peach Bowl themed from Atlanta, my parting gift from our time down there uh, was a case of the flu. So I dealt with that the first couple of days of the year, free from it now. And without further ado, we bring in Tyler Calvaruso. And Tyler, I, I talked about it. I'm laying in bed yesterday wondering what's going to happen. Uh, January 3rd, you know there's a potential for movement. Ultimately, we saw one wide receiver hit the transfer portal. One wide receiver announced he's coming to Happy Valley from the transfer portal. And we're going to start with that addition Julian Fleming, he's been a hot topic on our podcast, on our message boards, with your coverage for the past month since he entered the transfer portal following his fourth regular season with the Ohio State Buckeyes. He was a starter for 20 of his final 23 games uh, with the Buckeyes, the most competitive wide receiver room in college football, I think you could call it, during the last four-year sample size. And Tyler, he makes this move. We're going to get into some of the ins and outs, but how notable is this? It's one that we've been waiting for, anticipating, but for it to be official, and Julian Fleming is now making his move. He will be a student athlete at Penn State starting this upcoming week. What do we make of it as we wrap our heads around it? It's a big deal no matter how you slice it. You know, you could – is it fair to wonder what Julian Fleming could accomplish coming to Penn State given the way his Ohio State career played out? Definitely. I, I think that's a fair thing to, you know, ponder, you know, given the way things played out for him in Columbus. But – the fact of the matter is Julian Fleming adds a lot of value in multiple ways to this wide receiver room for Penn State. First, you start with the on-field ability. He's clearly talented. He was a former five-star prospect. You know, he battled injuries at Ohio State, but he consistently impressed the staff there, you know, on the practice field. He accomplished his fair share on the field during games as well. You know, he wasn't necessarily prolific, but you got to keep in mind some of the guys he was playing behind. I mean, Ohio State one of the best wide receiver rooms in college football year in and year out. Fleming was part of that rotation. He might not have been a focal point, but he's a, to be able to crack that rotation in any degree, you got to be a talented player, and Julian Fleming has that. He's going to bring leadership to this wide receiver room, which I think is a really, really big deal. You know, he's just one of those guys that he's got that alpha mindset. You know, he won't force it on you, but – he commands presence when he walks into a room. You know, he's got that he's got that leadership mindset. It's kind of natural for him. And I think it also helps that he has a chip on his shoulder as well. You know, he's looking to prove a point with Penn State in 2024. So I think he's going to be a huge addition to the wide receiver room from an off-the-field perspective as well. And, you know, I've talked to people who really just feel if Penn State can, you know, kind of reinstill confidence in Fleming, get him playing confident football, and if he could stay healthy – 
there are 2024. There are plenty of people who think he can make a big impact on this Nittany Lions offense. So we're going to have to see what ultimately comes together, you know, from an on-the-field perspective. He's going to have to get acclimated. He's going to have to get used to the playbook, learn to handle Colton and Yankee's system as uh, the rest of the Penn State offense is going to have to do throughout this offseason. But it's a good start for Penn State when it comes to addressing wide receiver. You know, it's not the only move that the staff is looking to make, but it's a good place to start. This is a guy that six and a half years ago, I was at the seven on seven tournament watching him uh, dealing with leg cramps throughout the afternoon, go out and just showcase exactly the kind of talent he was going to become at Southern Columbia. He had already put together a strong freshman year. He already had a few Big Ten offers at that point. And James Franklin sent him home with a scholarship offer that day. I remember interviewing him within a few hours. And I think myself and a lot of other people who covered the team closely, a lot of people who were working for the program at that time really pegged him as an eventual Nittany Lion. Thought it was just a matter of time before he came on board with that class, was a leader within that class. And we saw what happened. Things materialized differently. The Penn State passing game materialized in a much different way than, than Ohio State's did. Uh, the wide receiver coach position materialized in a much different way here in Happy Valley than it did in Columbus. And ultimately, he signed with Ohio State. He ended up getting an opportunity to compete in a, in a wide receiver room that, as I said, is up there with any in college football on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know he didn't have that breakout season. He maxed out around 550 receiving yards as a junior. That year he had 34 catches, six touchdowns. That is the, the single season highs for him to this point. But again, started 20 of the last 23 games with Ohio State. Um, availability issues that limited at times because of injury issues. Um, but within that room, this is a group that not only are you playing for a program that truly views one loss during the regular season as a failure, as a disappointment, that, that's what's hanging over your head on a consistent basis there at Ohio State. But you're sharing that room and you're sharing a depth chart with guys who are either one year away from becoming first round NFL draft picks. And I think one year he had three of them in that room leaving the same year and become first round picks in the NFL. And you've got a bunch of guys who, who are now younger than you in that room who are now projecting as first round NFL draft picks. So you want to talk about intense scrutiny, intense pressure. Julian Fleming has lived it. He survived it. And a big thing, that, while he may not have had that the, the thriving uh, aspect of it in the fireworks show of his own from an offensive standpoint, you look beyond the stat sheet here, Tyler, and this is something I wrote about shortly before we came on to record. There's a lot that Penn State's adding that its hope is going to be infectious within this wide receiver room, really within this offense. I'm looking at effort. I'm looking at work ethic here, and he brings both of those things. This is a guy that when you talk about a willingness to get it done when you're not the guy getting targets and you're, and you're not getting you know six, seven receptions a game, he was among the Ohio State Buckeyes' most consistent run blockers during the last few seasons. This past season in particular – Pro Football Focus graded him second among all Buckeyes players behind only offensive tackle Josh Fryer in run blocking grades. Um, that's a big note. And, and I think if people listen to our initial coverage of Andy Kotal Nicky's hiring coming on as the offensive coordinator, you may remember what we talked about during his time at Kansas, where he relied heavily on the ability of wide receivers to get it done, blocking on the perimeter, blocking in some unique ways. And then he would play off some of that where you're freeing up wide receivers because the anticipation is they might be throwing a block your way. So there's a lot of excitement about that. And when you look at what Kansas did last year, or this past year, I should say, with Kotal Nicky there, uh, two guys were at the top of their board for run blocking grades from the receiver room. Uh, and then four overall receivers were among their top 10 graded run blockers for Kansas. You work your way through Penn State starting wide receivers last year and where they fell on the run blocking scheme bottom third of the team, bottom portion of the team in Keandre Lambert-Smith, Dante Cephas, Harrison Wallace, the guys who were getting starts. 
not pretty in, in how their run blocking efforts were reflected. Uh, Keandre Lambert Smith was the best of those three, but still not quite where you would hope it to be when you have this uh, a really proficient group of running backs in Nick Singleton and Katron Allen. So th th that's there. And then I just look about, well, what's the culture right now? Uh, you know, I think overall Penn State, but but let's look at in that wide receiver room. You've got Marcus Higgins as the coach of that room. He did not personally recruit a single member of the 2023 wide receiver room to campus. Commitments from the, the transfers and Malik McLean and Dante Cephas predated his hiring. Uh, the pickup of Carmelo Taylor, the only freshman, predated his hiring. The presence of five second-year wide receivers, you've lost one of them to the transfer portal already in Christian Driver. All five of those guys were recruited to campus by Taylor Stubblefield. So as we look at this, they're about to add Josiah Brown, a freshman who's in uh, rookie back from an injury. They're going to add him in January as well. But Julian Fleming is the first figure that Marcus Higgins is bringing in that could really be an extension of Marcus Higgins in some ways, because Marcus Higgins isn't going to be around this wide receiver group on a daily basis anymore. Uh, there are regulations within the NCAA. Uh, these guys are going to have a lot more freedom to work or not work when they choose in the coming months, except for some structured periods and different months of the offseason calendar. So I think peer leadership is going to be paramount in this room. I think it was a huge question mark and really ultimately a bit of a letdown as the 2023 season progressed. Keandre Lambert-Smith's a guy um, that, that was not available for any media in December leading up to the Peach Bowl. That included a Peach Bowl media day in State College. That included a couple of days of, of availabilities for other offensive players in Atlanta. And when he was approached post-game down in Atlanta after the matchup in which he played a season-low 21 snaps, Keandre Lambert-Smith declined uh, to, to speak with media. So that doesn't really reflect so well. I mean, you understand there's questions about the receiver room. You're the senior in the receiver room. You're the number one guy in that group on the season by about 350-plus yards. And yet, you know, it's time to answer some tough questions. He's not available for them for one way or the other. Um, I think with Julian Fleming and, and beyond the tough questions that need to be answered externally from us in the media, I know that that really register for a lot of people. There have been questions all year uh, just about where that room was uh, confidence wise, mentally, day to day, week to week. And we know that Keandre Smith has talked about his consistency in that regard as something he's tried to work on through these last few years. Now, we don't know what Keandre Lambert Smith is going to do in 2024. He's got a fifth year of eligibility because of COVID that he could utilize at Penn State or on another college campus. He could decide he wants to see what he can do at the pro level. Uh, but right now, I, I view Fleming as not just an addition that could really explode for you with some offensive production this year. Wouldn't that be a great way to finish it for Julian Fleming and here in Penn State? And they play Ohio State in Beaver Stadium along the way. A lot to like about that. But to me, Tyler, this moves so much about what's going to transpire from January through August, because this needs a reboot, a reset in that receiver room. And Julian Fleming's the kind of personality and the guy who I think is going to lead by example and maybe make feel make others feel awkward or make others feel like they're laying the team down when they don't bring the same emotional and, and, and energy and when they don't invest the same uh, effort that, that a Julian Fleming does. So I wonder if this can raise all ships in the receiver room or maybe, you know, maybe kind of exploit some of those guys who who don't belong there anymore because they're going to realize that if they're trying to keep up with Julian Fleming, they've got to change some things. Yeah, I, I think this is why Ohio State fans loved Julian Fleming so much. He's one of those guys who just shows up to work every day, 
no matter what's going on. You know, he probably wasn't seeing as many passes thrown his way, maybe as he would have liked at certain points, but he never complained, always put his head down, always went to work. And that rubs off on your teammates. You know, when you see a guy like Julian Fleming walk into a room, you see how hard he's going to work. You look at the work that he's putting in. You see that and you think to yourself, well, how do I get to that level? You know, how do I put in that kind of work? How do I take my game to the next level? So a guy like Fleming, he's definitely a lead by example kind of guy. And he'll lead vocally as well. You know, I think if he sees something as a grizzled veteran at this point in his career, I think if he sees something that he doesn't like, he might be the new guy in the room, but I think he's going to command an initial respect. I do think that is the kind of player and person that he is. And I think that, like I said earlier, there's a ton of value in that. And you kind of saw that really the way this whole process was handled by Fleming behind the scenes. You know, this was a very, uh, this is a very business-like and, you know, very clear cut process that played out. I know we fielded a ton of questions pretty consistently on, you know, when is this going to happen? Once Fleming get announced, you know, has anything changed? And no, nothing really did change at all throughout Fleming's process. You know, he makes it to Penn State for that visit during the first week that he hit the portal. And that was a lengthy visit that he had with the staff. I had a source tell me that visit lasted around five hours. So there was a lot hashed out in that time. And, you know, both sides were aligned. You know, their goals were aligned and they're very aligned in what they want to accomplish in 2024. You know, why didn't, Penn State and Fleming come together at that point. Why Fleming make it to Nebraska for an official visit after that? You know, Nebraska really just rolled out the red carpet, you know, made a pretty substantial NIL offer. You know, I've heard in six figures, but really at the end of the day, Fleming just wanted to be back in Pennsylvania. He wanted to be at Penn State. He wanted to end his collegiate career with a bang, and he feels that suiting up for the Nittany Lions this upcoming season, so give him the best chance to do so. So I think there's just going to be a ton of value that Julian Fleming adds. And I think when we're looking back at this conversation you know, at this time next year, I definitely think there's a real possibility we're looking at Julian Fleming as like, hey, this is a guy who really, really helped change the makeup and outlook of Penn State's wide receiver room. Yeah, and he certainly may not be alone uh, when it comes to additions mm. uh, who've already played college football. We'll get into another name in just a second, but Penn State collectively the last couple of years, 2022, 2023, added nine different scholarship receivers to this roster. Uh, former Western Kentucky standout Mitchell Tinsley caught a team best 51 passes uh, in, in 2022. He had 577 yards and five touchdowns. That was his one and done season before he went off uh, to pursue an NFL career. The other eight that I mentioned collectively, they accounted for 46 catches, 551 yards, and six touchdowns uh, during that two-year span, which features a couple different wide receivers coaches, a couple different uh, quarterbacks. Uh, and, and look, we don't have a lot of answers from this unit since Jahan Dotson went off to the NFL as a first-round pick. Uh, this is a significant one. And, and as I just alluded to, still putting in work are Marcus Higgins, James Franklin, and company. Uh, uh, there's been a bunch of names that surfaced early in December along with Fleming. Many of them have found other homes. Some of them maybe weren't the right fits for Penn State, as it turned out. We've got another one to address here. Talk us through the latest preeminent or prominent target that Penn State's focused on as a pass catcher. You know, LeJante Wester was from Florida Atlantic was one of the better wide receivers in college football in 2023 in terms of production, more than a hundred catches for FAU over a thousand receiving yards, eight touchdowns. He's been in the portal. He's been an attractive name in the portal. And as far as we know, he's still planning on making it to Penn state for a visit this weekend. You know, keep in mind right now, Thursday afternoon, things could always change given the fluid nature of the portal. But as of right now, we're still expecting Wester in town. And he, 
let me just say the fluid nature of our weather forecast as well. Per, per my uh, in-home meteorologist, aka my wife, we're supposed to get like maybe a half foot of snow here on Saturday. So that was as of last night, but also something to keep in mind as we look toward travels. Yeah, so that's definitely going to play a part in all of this. You know, it's probably not ideal that a guy who has spent his collegiate career in Florida is going to be walking into some wintry conditions either. So the hope is that Western is going to be able to make it to campus, you know, without a hitch regarding the weather. But I think I don't think that'll be an issue. You know, I think uh, things will play out there perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, I think I I've watched some tape on Western, and I think given what Fleming does well – and given what Wester does well, these could be, you know, kind of a perfect duo if it comes together for Penn State. Wester's at Baylor right now. He's been making, I believe, three other visits after he makes it to Penn State. So there's a ton of competition, you know, and there's a ton of competition with deep pockets as well. So we're going to have to see how that factors into the equation. But right now, this moment, we're still looking at Wester making it to campus for a visit this weekend. And it's a big one because I think that, you know, Fleming's going to play more on the outside. Wester, I think, could do a lot of damage on the inside in the slot. He could play on the outside as well, but I think inside on the slot is where he's most dangerous. You know, you could use him in a lot of different ways. We know that's something Andy Nicky likes to do. He likes to get his playmakers involved in a variety of ways. And I think Wester is a guy who can bring value in that regard. You know, he, he's, he's a speed guy. He's fast. He can fly. So that always helps. And I think he'd be a really, really good addition for Penn State in addition to Fleming. So we're going to have to see if it comes together, and we'll see what comes out of this weekend. Tyler, beyond the wide receiver position, which has been the focal point for a lot of our talks about the transfer portal, uh, cornerback is an area that we have long discussed as a potential priority for Penn State. Uh, we now know the answer about who they're losing. It's it's three starters. You know, Daquan Hardy's off to the NFL. So is Kalen King, and so is Johnny Dixon. We only saw one of those guys down in Atlanta play in the Peach Bowl, uh, but none of them are playing in 2024. So, let, yes, you have Cam Miller, you have Elliott Washington, you have Zion Tracy, you have a couple more cornerbacks coming in, you have a Lamont Payne who redshirted. There's a nice cluster of young, burgeoning talent, you'd like to think, but there's certainly maybe a need for a plug-and-play college veteran, and they arguably have the best available guy at the cornerback position in the transfer portal currently on campus, as you reported, shortly before we sat down to record here. Yeah, A.J. Harris from Georgia, who was a five-star recruit just last cycle in the 2023 class. He was a five-star guy out of a Central High in Phoenix City, Alabama, which is a place Penn State has plenty of familiarity recruiting. You know, Terry Smith, he is well-respected at that school, so there are some good relationships already in place. A lot of that played a part in getting Harris to campus for this visit that is currently playing out. He arrived in town on Wednesday. We'll stay through Thursday, and I like where Penn State is at right now given some of the feedback that I've received. I want to see how the visit ultimately plays out, see how the two sides gel and things of that nature. But I think Penn State's in a pretty good spot to add A.J. Harris to its cornerback room right now. And look, you know, you look at the current makeup of the cornerback room, there are spots up for grabs on the depth chart. You know, there's definitely a lot of talent in the room. You know, Penn State has a bunch of good players in the room, but there's always room to add more talent, and that's what Harris is. I mean, he's a top-10 player in the portal right now overall. We have him as the number two cornerback in the portal overall. He has three seasons of eligibility remaining. He played in seven games as a true freshman at Georgia, so he burned through his red shirt this season. But really, just comes down to the fact that if you get a guy like Harris in here, you can realistically argue that he becomes, raw talent-wise, Penn State's most talented cornerback in 2024. 
you know, he's still young. He still has to develop. So, you know, he's not a finished product. He's There's going to be a lot of development that goes on if he does indeed come to Penn State. But raw talent-wise, he's as good as anyone in the room. And I think that's something that, you know, definitely appeals to the Penn State staff. As appealing as experience is in the portal, raw talent, like the talent that A.J. Harris has, hey, you can't go wrong with that. So, again, we're going to have to see what comes together coming out of this visit. But right now, I do like where Penn State stands, probably more than Harris's other shooters. I've heard Kentucky tossed around, Auburn, Tennessee was mentioned as a possible destination for a visit. I'm not really sure what's going on on that front right now, but what I do know is that Harris is at Penn State, and things are looking pretty solid for the Nittany Lions. Yeah, a guy who burned redshirt, playing with the two-time defending national champion That's Georgia notable. Bulldogs. And, and just to note this, because if you're adding him as Penn State, this is very notable. He spent a full year with Georgia. He wasn't a guy who got to campus in the summer and got a half year in Athens. He enrolled last January. So he's got a full year under his belt, away from home, uh, competing in a very high-stakes environment. And he did enough to, to, to get on the field and burn red shirts. So this would be a significant pickup, as you said, uh, a top 10 overall talent right now in 24-7 sports assessment of the transfer portal. And if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of talent in the transfer portal. By the way, Julian Fleming, number 39 overall, the number seven wide receiver in 24-7 sports assessment. Tyler, we'll keep tabs on this. I know it's a day-by-day -day process as always, but it's nice to get some answers. Your reporting has been on point throughout. Um, you've also got some coverage of the All-American uh, Bowl takeaways down in San Antonio from, from Cooper Cousins, from Luke Reynolds up at lines247.com. So folks, check those out because those guys are just a matter of days away from becoming Nittany Lions as January enrollees. Tyler, we'll follow your coverage at lines247.com. We'll get you back on the podcast soon. Thanks for having me, man. It was great to be back. All right, let's get back to it with Mark Brennan and Daniel Gallon, who I just spent the final week of 2023 with down in Atlanta. And fellas, I hope you had a chance to, to celebrate New Year's with your families. I know Daniel was all over the map uh, before he got back to Happy Valley, but we're settled back in. I think we're finally a little bit healthier now. And on January 4th, we're starting to get some answers. Let's circle back to the big news of the week thus far. And Julian Fleming completing this full circle process to end up at Penn State after all. And Mark, you were there that day in July 2017. The headliner was Micah Parsons, a rising senior at Harrisburg High School, who we thought was going to end up at a different college, going out there and being the MVP of that tournament. But one of the subplots that day was Julian Fleming picking up his offer and clearly looking like a name to know in in-state recruiting efforts for the next several years. He ultimately goes to Columbus, spends four years there, and now he re-enters the equation for Penn State joining a wide receiver room that really needs a jolt. Yeah, I mean, I think Tyler Calvaruso touched on it, and you did as well. I mean, I think this room needs a dynamic personality, right? I mean, obviously it needs talent, but it just seems to me, and with all due respect to the people who were there, but if you look at what happened in that room late in the season, it just didn't seem like there was strong leadership. I'm just calling it the way I see it. And this guy looks like he's been that kind of person. The one thing I really like that Tyler Calvaruso said is, you know, did things work out exactly the way everybody thought they would for a five-star prospect at Ohio State? No, but he was banged up. And I also think you have to take a pretty hard look at the other receivers who were in that room. Uh, you know, and not just this year, but the last few years. 
and they were operating at a whole different level. Now, that's not to say that Penn State didn't have a Jahan Dotson, you know, who who was who was tremendous in a top ten pick, or a Parker Washington who had a who was having a nice rookie year uh, in the NFL despite having a serious injury. But bringing in somebody with a with that sort of leadership, uh, with those sort of leadership credentials. I think is key. And then the, the, the other thing, Tyler, I remember these and Daniel, I'm not sure if you were at these camps, but no, he was playing. Not. Yeah. He was playing <laughs> for a Southern Columbia team. That's really, you know, kind of a small school type team at the, at, at the, at the team camps that, that he participated in here at Penn state. And they were playing the Damathas, you know, they were playing all of the heavy hitters and this kid stood out. And listen, I get that he's had his opportunity to play at the college level, but the, the the talent is there. I think the athletic ability is there, and most of all, those leadership skills. And to to see him coming home and being able to play his last season at Penn State, that's you know that Southern Columbia program is just a tremendous program. I feel so good for the fans of that program who may now have a more realistic opportunity to come see him play. I feel really good for his for his family, you know, and friends who it's a little bit easier to come from from that area, you know, right by the Lehigh Valley to to hap, to Happy Valley than it is to, to to motor all the way across to Columbus. So I think it's just a win-win situation for everybody and a really good addition at a at a spot where Penn State really, really needed a punch in the arm or a shot in the arm or a shot of, you know what I'm saying, just a little yeah. bit of uh, little bit of adrenaline. Uh, I, just to hammer home the point, because I, I know we've all seen it firsthand when these matchups have occurred, just the, the level that Ohio State brings to the field, that wide receiver. But Penn State went 18 years before it had a first-round pick at wide receiver in Jahan Dotson in 2021. During Julian Fleming's four-year stay at Ohio State, he will have played with at least four first round picks at the receiver position. Jackson Smith and Jigba, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, and I'm including Marvin Harrison Jr. in that one because I think that's a done deal. He's going to go round one next year. And he was a Heisman Trophy finalist, by the way. And I'm only saying, and I'm saying it's going to say at least four receivers because there's younger members of that room. There's guys who are still in Columbus that could turn out to be first round picks that Julian Fleming had to compete with on a day to day basis. So it is a completely different reality. It is a juxtaposed kind of thing that, that Julian Fleming is going to go from a room where you are among all these future first round picks to one where the identity is very much in flux. It's a wide receivers coach, as I said, who Julian Fleming is the first guy he's personally brought to campus, along with incoming freshman Josiah Brown, that he handpicked to be at Penn State. Daniel, what do you think of this addition for the Nittany Lions? Not even looking at what it means September, October, November, December, but the groundwork that needs to be laid between now and August. Yeah, I, I think that getting Julian Fleming in this room is just a, a really, really big deal. Um, you, you think about his time at Ohio State and as a five-star recruit and someone who went in with those kind of very, very lofty uh, expectations, goals. I mean, he was supposed to contribute at the level as some of those other guys did. That's just how the the rankings are, the expectations are. But you know, even if he didn't, he had the opportunity to see how those guys worked he had the opportunity to compete with them every day. And that's something that he can now bring to Happy Valley uh, into that wide receivers room. And I think by having him um, in there uh, early uh, has the opportunity to set the tone, has the opportunity to set example for these younger wide receivers. I mean, I think that that's something that is, is really, really big. 
Um, you know, I, I think that we could still end up seeing a, a lot of change in there. Um, and then by the time we get to August, that room is going to look different because Peter Gonzalez and Tysier Denmark are, are going to be there too. Um, but I think that by adding Julian Fleming at this juncture, I, I just think that it's a really, really big deal for Penn State. Um, I think that he can add a lot to the on-field product, but I think that he can also add a lot in kind of the offseason on the practice field in the in the training room during strength and conditioning i mean this is a guy who's who's been around the block he's been in college for a long long time um, i think that last year in his junior season at ohio state i think we saw maybe i thought i think it teased out a little bit more of kind of um you know, what the what those high expectations what it could look like um, but i think that coming in i mean i think that you know it's just kind of he'll be able to set, help with the culture a little bit um right now and then we'll get to the point where he can help on the field we'll be right back on the lions 24 7 podcast yeah, we'll talk about another big win for the penn state culture in a moment as decisions have, have come in from some regarding 2024 but just sticking with this position uh, for a little while longer um one of the names that we were waiting for last offseason around the same time was dante cephas he was one of those hot names in the portal, he had a four-star status from 24-7 Sports, two all-MAC campaigns with Kent State, and Penn State was, was in a bit of a dogfight by the way we understood it. With some of the you know, premier programs in the country also uh, you know, putting calls into Dante Cephas, checking his interest about their programs. He ultimately commits, gets to campus uh, in May, and then hits the practice field for the first time in August. And I think by the time August finished, and it was apparent that not only wasn't he going to be a starter, but he was kind of scraping and clawing to even be a too deep consideration, we kind of checked our expectations at a different level. And there was a moment, guys, early November, where he goes on the road against Maryland, has a couple nifty touchdown catches from Drew Aller, his best game in a Nittany Lions uniform. That's the first game where you're without Harrison Wallace, and you know that he's got all of November, essentially, in that starting role, and it just didn't come together for him. And then December comes, and while I'm not sure we'll ever get the nitty-gritty details of why it fell apart the way it did, it got to the point where Penn State wasn't comfortable involving him in the game plan for the Peach Bowl. He didn't take a single rep. Um, and there have also been some noise about, was Dante Cephas a good fit from a cultural standpoint with this team? And 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 in retrospect, was that was that a match? And what, I guess Dante Cephas has made his decision or someone's made it for him because he has entered the transfer portal. He has re-entered it for the second consecutive year. He'll look to finish his career elsewhere. He's got that COVID eligibility that, that so he can plant his flag on a different campus and try to finish out his college career in a different fashion. But Mark, among the underwhelming aspects of Penn State past game, whether, whether you want to talk about Keandre Lambert-Smith's kind of fade act late in the season or Drew Aller's inability to consistently hook up with targets downfield, uh, really beyond the tight end room, you can point to a lot of things, but it's Dante Cephas's extended absence in the waiting game that we seem to be playing for him and the staff seem to be playing for him to find his footing at the Power 5 level. It just never happened. He fell short of 300 receiving yards on the season. He was Penn State's second leading receiver among wide receivers with 22 catches, and it just was messy. It was messy all the way through. Yeah, just, you know, in hindsight, he sure seemed like a guy who really would have benefited by arriving last January. I know that's not everybody, but clearly it was with him. He didn't have the benefit of going through spring ball. And for whatever reason, I you know, certain people pick up offenses uh, at, at different rates. 
I mean, I remember Pat Fryermuth came in here as a true freshman, you know, in the summer and w was ready to go by, by the end of fall camp. But some people just don't don't do that. And, and that's not necessarily a knock on him. But I, I think the other thing. So it took a while. And this was from him, and this was from the coaching staff telling us this, right? This wasn't just us observing from the outside. It took him a while. Oh, I like that Yeti that you have there. That is pretty <laughs> slick. Wow. <laughs> but it took him a while. But then the other thing that I, you know, I, I think we have to take a, a hard look at something else with this whole dynamic, right? Because, yeah, you talk about that Maryland game. But, you know, that wasn't exactly one of the stellar defenses that Penn State was facing, uh, you know, that, down in College Park. But, you know, the whole dynamic with the wide receiver room after the Michigan game and, and the OC change, it turned everything on its head. And that's where Keandre Lambert-Smith began to disappear, right? And so I just think they wanted to do a total reset, and I just – it just doesn't seem like they were comfortable with maybe some of the attitudes. I, I, I you know, I, I'm just throwing it out there. They're never going to say that, but I don't know how you go from guys who were your two leading wide receivers at, at that late juncture of the season to one of them, not even playing in the bowl and one of them having one target. And in Keandre Lambert Smith, he had what two catches in the last four games or three games? I mean, in the last so, four. Yeah. So I, I just think, along with that coordinator change, I think they just had to maybe they were readjusting and and, and giving some other people opportunities. And uh, I, I don't want to come across as being negative toward anybody because I don't know all the dynamics, but I just don't think that happens. I just don't think you have two players who are that much of what you do disappear. And for whatever reason, it happened, and Penn State is where where it's at now. Well, look, your three guys who you came into this year, and we knew there was a lot of players who could have breakout seasons, and maybe we they, maybe they were going to show up in big ways. But the three guys that we felt like we kind of had our heads wrapped around this year were Malik McLean, Dante Cephas, and Keandre Lambert Smith, because they had done it at this level to some degree as starters, as key contributors power five or a group of five, what have you. Uh, at the end of the day, th this team that we watched that was desperately searching for answers at receiver that couldn't complete a pass to a receiver for 46 minutes against Ole Miss, those three players combined for 25 snaps. You got four from Malik McLean, zero from Dante Cephas, and a season-low 21 from Keandre Lambert-Smith. You got Harrison Wallace back. You were able to inject him back into the game. He had some nice moments late in what you could probably refer to as garbage time, uh, but but he did put that, put together some some um, some stats there late. He got into the end zone, and then he got hurt again. So so you were still kind of waiting to see Harrison Wallace be able to not end up on the ground for a sustained period of time when, when, you know, when he's playing in consistent action. And that leads you to where you are now, where Julian Fleming would seem to have a, a very clear pathway uh, toward taking this thing over. And, and But we still have to look at the fact that Keandre Lambert-Smith had about 350 more receiving yards than anybody on this roster. And he's not he wasn't up to answer any questions after the game, uh, which I guess is his right. Every other player in that locker room that was approached, uh, whether they had tears in their eyes or not, responded to us and asked you know asked answered questions um it is what it is it was a 20 minute open period after a cooling off period for that locker room and keandre lambert smith was approached and um by my understanding he didn't turn his back uh, you know he, he didn't turn around to answer the question he just said i'm not answering questions right now um that's what we've got uh to work with with keandre lambert smith right now he's got another year of, of eligibility 
But Daniel, um, you know, you almost wonder if he uses that. Does it happen here in Happy Valley? Because we're about to start a new semester. So we're going to have some answers one way or the other. Keandre Labert-Smith, though, is a guy that entered 2023 saying all the right things. People were saying all the right things about him, you know, working off that strong finish to his junior season, you know, looking like the guy for Drew Aller through much of the spring and into the summer. And even as Harrison Wallace started to pop up and he was somebody that you heard you know, the ball was rolling in the right direction. It's just really unfortunate to, for the final taste in your mouth here, uh, whether you cover the team or follow the team or you're a part of the team regarding Keandre Lambert Smith is one, the very low productivity, uh, but also to the, the, the lack, the seemingly the lack of any kind of, you know, accountability. And I'm not just talking about individual accountability here. I'm talking about stepping up and, and speaking for your brothers in that room because somebody has to, because a player has to show up and answer some questions and uh, about a room that's in, in the spotlight by a lot of people. And it's maybe it's not Caden Saunders' responsibility or Mari Evans' responsibility. Maybe it's the responsibility of the guy who had 500 more yards than anyone else in the room and the guy who has called himself wide receiver one in that room for an entire year. And for him not to be ready to talk uh, after this game and for him not to be available to media for the entire month of December. I don't know whose call that was, uh, but it wasn't a good look. Um, it just really changes the complexion of how this year was viewed for Keandre Lambert Smith. And he's a guy I was rooting for. And he's the guy that I thought really had things going in the right direction. And I just, it, it's one of those internal question marks that we're going to hear leaks and we're going to hear nuggets and we're never going to probably piece together the full story. It just, it's unfortunate because this was a four year buildup process for a former top 24 seven prospect. And it just didn't quite reach the finish line. When you think back to the spring and how James Franklin talked about the wide receiver room, where it was Keandre Lambert Smith, Trey Wallace and everybody else, and there's been the, the kind of the times where it's not too often that James Franklin kind of almost like set it and forget it uh, with some of these spots. You know, he he wouldn't do that with the quarterbacks uh, up until Drew Aller got announced on the video board. Um, th there's other positions where it always comes up. I think with Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren, a little bit different case, but it was always one A, one B. One was never above the other. Um, and it's kind of only certain guys where. James Franklin does this uh, over the course of the year. I think Olu was one of them. Um, I think Drew Scruggs was another one uh, going into that 2022 season where it was kind of, he's the guy like that set. He got all the reps there. You know, we're going. And I think most of the time when James Franklin does that, he has a pretty good pulse and he knows that this is how a guy needs to be handled. And you see the positive results that come out of it. I mean, we know about Olu. Drew Scruggs ended up being, I think his departure this year might have been a little underrated in terms of that offensive line. You know, he became a, a second round pick and is starting games at guard in the NFL right now. Um, and so to to have James Franklin kind of single out Keandre Lambert Smith like that and, and with how last season ended, I think that we were all kind of bought in on this would be the guy. Um, and I think that we saw last year with how that offense ran. Um, you know, we weren't expecting Keandre Lambert Smith to put up uh, Jahan Dotson numbers uh, like he did in 2021 um, just because of what we knew with Nick Singleton and Katron Allen, Trey Wallace taking a jump, and even someone like Dante Cephas coming in. I mean, even if it was more along the lines of what we saw from Mitchell Tinsley, Parker Washington last year, I, I think that that and Keandre Lambert-Smith was in line there, but it was just how it happened, being so front-loaded and, and falling off. I mean, I think that 
that's pretty stark when you consider where we were last March and April to you know where we are now with this wide receiver room and, and with Keandre Lambert Smith in particular. So I think that there's going to have to be some decisions made, whether it's uh, Lambert Smith's decision, whether it's the coaching staff's decision, whether it's someone else's decision as to as to what happens there. Um, you know, I think that they have to figure out what he wants to do, what Penn State wants to do with this fifth year of, of eligibility that he has. Um, but it is kind of a it's a precipitous fall, I think. Um, uh, you know, a couple times during earlier in the season, I I said that you know, Keandre Lambert Smith really was looking like a wide receiver one. Even in those games where it was taking time for the offense to get going, he was the one that would pop up and be able to make a couple catches here or there, get a couple, you know, get some yards after the catch, move the chains, um, be there for Drew Aller. And it seemed like they had some really good chemistry going on early in the season. But that just really, really fell off uh, as the year went on. And it's, you know, kind of like you said, who knows if we'll ever find out all of the reasons for, for why this happened. But I think that the way that it culminated with, you know, being in the Peach Bowl and season low in snaps, only one target when he was on the field, though it didn't even really seem like he was super, super involved uh, in the game plan. I mean, there's the the one play where that one play that I remember that he was in for. I think they had four guys split out and Lambert Smith was all the way to the outside and he is all the way on, essentially on the hash marks on the right sideline. And I think the ball was at the left hash at that point. Um, and we know Drew Aller has a strong arm, but not sure that he's going to be throwing all the way over to there. So I just think that with Keandre Lambert Smith for, for this season to end this way, I mean, it's a very, very sour ending. Um, it would have been really nice to hear from him, um, you know, to kind of know what's going on in his head, to know from his perspective, what's happening. Um, that's his prerogative, uh, whether or not he would want to share that, that he would want to use the medium of us to share that. Um, you know, he can choose his own avenues to express what how he feels about things. But, um, you know, I think it is kind of, it's just a disappointing end, uh, given where we were a year ago. Yeah, and I, I completely support athletes for, for, especially in today's day and age, you have a lot of different vehicles in which to to choose to put your voice in. To me, it just I have a hard time shaking it, knowing full well that his room, you know, his guys are are taking hits right now from fans, from media. They could use somebody to go up and be the face of that group. And I know Marcus Higgins was ultimately available later in that in that post game scrum. Um, but man, but man, I think it, it means a little bit different when you have a peer stepping up and, and kind of representing it. And it just it, in the moment uh, that was the decision that was made. And uh, we'll find out what, what it all means moving forward with Keandre Lambert Smith. And just there's so many guys in this room when you work through Amari Evans, Caden uh, uh, Saunders, Liam Clifford, uh, even a guy like Malik Mega. You know, is it, if he's back or not? Um, you've got so many younger pieces, Tyler Johnson and. and and Anthony Ivy and then Carmelo Taylor Taylor who we, we hardly got to really know this year on campus where these are pieces many of them of the blue chip variety but now they're two three years removed from their last meaningful big moments I mean I, some of these guys have had flashes but none of the guys I've really talked about have really put together a big game at the college level and you're now two three four years removed from the last time they put together a big game against a live defense and that occurred on the high school field and the longer you get away from that, the scarier it becomes as a staff um, that, that you're going to be able to find that here at the college level. So 
they've got two more guys coming to campus that may be ready to compete uh, in the summer and entice your Denmark. Uh, and then Peter Gonzalez, and they've certainly got one in Julian Fleming who's going to hit the ground running, and they may have another from the transfer portal, maybe a highly productive guy from the FBS level. Uh, but solutions are needed. Marcus Higgins, uh, you, you kind of look at this scenario and say, again, he didn't bring anybody in, uh, but also it didn't really seem to maximize a lot of that talent during the course of the season. And I'll just say there's two things that we could probably hang a banner over in any of these particular conversations. Uh, one is the fact that you know Drew Aller did not elevate the the level of receiver play that we thought he might. You know, we, sometimes average groups of receivers can look good or even great when they have the right quarterback. We didn't see that come to fruition. Maybe week one we saw it, uh, maybe a little bit in the final week of the season, but other than that, not really. Uh, it's also fair to wonder if Drew Aller's development or lack thereof was collateral damage because of what they failed to put together in that wide receiver room in 2023. And the other thing is, for the first time in his lengthy head coaching tenure, James Franklin canned a coach. He fired the offensive coordinator in November. So let's remember a lot was wrong with the offensive plan this year if James Franklin was willing to do that during the season. Fresh start, receiver rooms in focus. We'll be talking about it a lot here on the podcast, a lot of lines247.com. But let's we'll put a pin in that for now and, and get over to a much more positive note, I think, for Penn State fans coming out of Wednesday evening. And that is Devon Ellis announcing that he is sticking around for season six. He's taken uh, the path that we've seen guys like Sean Clifford, uh, Jonathan Sutherland in the past take, taking advantage of that COVID eligibility and a bonus senior season. I think this means that Devon will have experienced three senior day ceremonies by the time he says goodbye officially. <laughs> to Happy Valley, but not only is this big for the defensive line, this is a guy who who, who took over the starting job at defensive tackle next to Zane Durant midseason and then excelled and ran with it, but he was the team's top overall graded player by pro football focus for his efforts in the Peach Bowl, which we didn't know if it was his last game. He was going full throttle out there, uh, almost 40 snaps. He earned almost a 90 rating, which is a career high for, for him. And then additionally, it's a bigger win, Mark, for the 2024 team culture Leadership was a question that we had back in January uh, about the group because they lost six captains from 2022. And one of the thoughts I've had here in the past few days, guys, is maybe we kind of forgot about that a little bit. Maybe leadership was always a bit of a concern. And that's not to, to shortchange guys like Curtis Jacobs and Adiza Isaac and Devon uh, and Olu Fashnu. But you just wonder the way it ended in Atlanta and, and some of the things that went on said. Um, you know, was leadership in the best of spots for this Penn State team in that locker room all the way through? Devon Ellis gives you a chance to really build on that aspect of your program beginning this January, Mark. Yeah, one quick thing on the wideouts. Um, yeah. As we watch the Bulls, and we have we have a little text chain going, and I forget which one of you guys said it, but it was Daniel. Would, yeah, <laughs> like, it's usually me. Yeah, when you you see all these wide receivers making plays. And I think it kind of got lost. I think James Franklin tried to say too much after that game. He's into the officiating, the moving parts, you know, all everything. But the thing about guys not making plays for Aller, I, I think that works both ways. I think Aller has got to make plays too. I don't think that was one of his – it clearly was not one of his better games. But as we watched the Peach Bowl and saw what Ole Miss did, and we watched Washington, we watched these – you know, Alabama – the unbelievable catches that these wide receivers were making for these quarterbacks. 
Did you watch uh, the Ole Miss? Did you watch Ole Miss there? <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah, it was, it was like it, it was unbelievable what they were doing. So I just think, that, you know, as we were talking about this, I didn't want to, that to get lost because I'm sure other people are watching these games the way we are. And it's like, where were those catches all year for Penn State? And they outside of the tight ends, they just didn't happen. But with respect to Devon, Hey, if he's going to bring that outfit he did for senior day with the Polynesian stuff, he could be in every senior day. Uh, <laughs> that's just awesome with him. You know, He's from a great family, as we know. And the thing that I love about him is he is a guy who came here and had to wait his turn for a long time. You know, he got some snaps, I think, when P.J. Mustafer got hurt a couple years ago out at Iowa. They had to kind of plug him in there. But he fought and he ground he ground things out. He, he he just kept working and working and working. And he he wasn't the starter at the beginning of this season. And then he became the starter and was really, as you mentioned, you know, their their MVP defensively uh in the bowl game, you know, grading out from pro football focus. So I think that's big. As soon as we heard that, the first thing I said to you guys is from a leadership standpoint. This is really big for them. You know, I think Curtis Jacobs was a great leader. Um, you know, to me, one of the better leaders they've had the last few years. He's a guy, when you talk about being accountable, when you talk about showing up after losses, when you talk about being the face of a position, did he always play his best game? Maybe not, but he was a strong leader. And I think to have a guy like Devon, uh, it, to, to me, is just really big. You, you have a young position coach. Uh, you know, guy who's going to be in his second year and to have that kind of veteran leadership. I think Devon's only about four years younger than Dion Barnes. I'm sorry, Devon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do think that's really big uh, for that room and for that side of the ball, given the people that they're losing. Devon already heard all those uh, Sean Clifford old man jokes, so I think he'll be ready to see them recycled on him uh, in the upcoming year. But let's not forget, this was a top 100 – I'm sorry, top – 150 overall prospect coming out of high school. He was the number nine overall defensive tackle in our rankings at 24-7 Sports. He's a guy that, that Penn State really had to battle for down the road. They got a commitment actually ahead of when he announced at the Polynesian Bowl, and he kept it quiet. Uh, but this was a big win for them, and this was following up P.J. Mustafer, who he played alongside there, a top 100 tackle prospect out of the McDonough School in Maryland. And what I love about this is it's, it's a little bit – unique now in modern college football where you've got a guy who came to campus with those kind of accolades uh you know didn't play a lot he played 42 total snaps his first couple of years took a red shirt in year one he gets a big opportunity as a red shirt sophomore as you mentioned mark when pj mustford goes down for the season in that iowa game he ends up playing more than 450 snaps in 2021 but it wasn't that good. He was a 49 rating from pro football focus on the season cumulatively, which is pretty low score. The next year he goes out and plays only 270 snaps in 2022. PJ Mustafer's back. There's other reinforcements. He takes a step back. He grades out at a 55. Now you wonder, you know, it's got to be a really good place relationship wise to, for everyone to keep going the same course and, and, and for people to not start pointing the fingers and starting to point toward the transfer portal on one side or the other. Ultimately, he comes out in year five, goes over 300 snaps, gets a 77 rating on the season, 
from Pro Football Focus, and he's always been the heart and soul kind of guy, a captain-in-waiting kind of guy. But this year he matched it with being truly one of the most consistent and disruptive members of this defensive group. He wasn't disruptive in the way that he was the guy flashing to the quarterback, but he was creating the opportunities for these really impressive edge rushers and linebackers to do what they need to do and, and what's really a, a thankless job a lot of times. So to have him back with an emerging Zane Durant in year three, you like the depth pieces pieces that are in place at defensive tackle. Hakeem Beeman's another one that you're wondering, is he going to remain on campus for 2024? But there's others around. Jordan uh, Vandenberg's still here. Uh, you've got uh, Alonzo Ford coming back uh, from an injury. I know I'm definitely forgetting a name or two in there right now. But, Daniel, this is one of those that I, I think we're, we're, you're looking for the stats and it doesn't jump out that much. But he is a cornerstone cornerstone member of this uh, of this group, and I can tell you, I saw him in the post game in that locker room. I didn't actually approach him. I, I just I, something told me not to. He had kind of a thousand yard stare on his face, and I didn't know. I, I I was leaning towards thinking it was his last game based on kind of the way he was talking before the game. I just wanted to give him his time uh, in that moment, and you know how much he cares about it. I mean, he was wearing that on his face. He, he was wearing those emotions in the post-game locker room. He was talking about it before the matchup. And if you're looking for people who genuinely give a crap about this team and not just about the 13 games that take place between September and December, but they give a crap about the team and what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis in January, in March, in May, in July, making sure the ball is rolling in the right direction. This is that kind of guy. Yeah, I, I think that you saw some of those photos of of Devon, <clears throat> excuse me, on the bench uh, after the Peach Bowl. It looked like he was one of the the last persons, the last people to leave the sideline um, with that kind of stare. I mean, I think that you just kind of know that that this means a lot to him out there. Um, and when I saw some of those photos and kind of listening to the way that he was talking before the game, I was kind of on, under the impression that this was probably it for him, uh, given how the season ended. Um, you know, kind of reading between the lines just based off of his body language, how I felt he was acting. Um, but I, I think that this is just really big for Penn State. Um, I think that on the from the leadership perspective, I think it's pretty huge um, from on field. The way that he came on at the end of the game or at the end of the season was really, really impressive as well. Um, and especially being able to compliment uh, Zane Durant. I think that that's something, too, that is that can be pretty difficult because Durant has gotten bigger, but he's still a little bit more of an interesting body type um, at that defensive tackle position. But I also think, I also think that Devon Elise is a really important person from a coaching perspective as someone that's an example to younger players. He did talk about how his, you know, kind of fluctuation in playing time and, and waiting his turn. But when I was doing some, some pre-work in December for, some of these announcements uh, and I was going through Devon's career uh, you see that he played in up before the season, he'd played in 30 games and had only two starts. And I think that, you know, for someone with like you laid out with his recruiting pedigree, the expectations um, kind of the other people that came into the room after he got here, it wouldn't have been super surprising if you saw like someone like that with his profile and, and this, this kind of situation look elsewhere. But the fact that he didn't and was rewarded for it with his play, I think is going to be something that Penn State can really point to with some of its younger players. I think having him around the sixth year is something that for these younger players who are coming in, these guys that are going to be five, six years, four, five, six years younger than him, they can look at what he did, how he did it, 
and got to this point to kind of see that there's different ways to get there. But I think that when you look at the interior of a defensive line, I think that that's, that's a position where it can take a little bit longer um, than some others for it to, to really click. Um, I think you have to be kind of a special player to really be able to make it work from day one right there, just because of the physical demands um, that are there. And I also think that Manny Diaz is, or that Devon, Devon Ellis is going to be one of those, these people that we see kind of the, the long tail of the Manny Diaz impact where I, I tried to frame it to, I think I actually tried to frame it to Devon. Maybe it was Curtis during bull media day, but you know, I was very curious that you know, despite the fact that Manny Diaz moved on, are some of these lessons, is his impact going to really stick with the younger players who remain here and kind of shape their careers? I didn't get a good answer on it, but I think listening to the way that Devon talked about how he kind of learned to play under Manny Diaz this year, a lot of you know playing free, less thinking, similar to kind of what we heard from someone like Adisa Isaac. Um, I think that the experience that he had of getting coached and playing in that type of defense, even though things will be different next year with Tom Allen, I think that that's something that will also pay off for Penn State and for Devon. Quick rundown of that 2019 Penn State recruiting class, which we're not done with just yet as Devon's coming back. But who else is in play from that group? Who else is definitely gone? What's what's the deal there? Caden Wallace off to the NFL. Adiza Isaac off to the NFL. Keaton Ellis done with eligibility. Hakeem Beeman, we're waiting to hear back. He's had a really interesting Penn State career, to say the least, at defensive tackle. Um, going through this list just to make sure we're not missing anybody. Smith Bilbert is another one looming out there, a guy who missed this entire year with an injury suffered early in 2023. Um, haven't had a long look at him since the Outback Bowl when he had three sacks in the first half, but he's a year six guy that we can tell you he was at every single practice over the course of this season intently watching those defensive linemen. Certainly didn't seem like a guy working his way toward the exit door, and James Franklin seemed to uh, assert back in August that that he felt Smith Vilbert was going to be a part of this team in 2024. And then another really interesting one here, as we also note that Daquan Hardy has moved on to the NFL, Sal Wormley. And, and based on the conversations I was having with some folks in that locker room and postgame, he was very much being discussed as a piece of the process in 2024 for the offensive line. Now, we'd like to hear it from Sal himself, who falls in the same category as Caden Wallace on that offensive line, a guy who was redshirted as a freshman in 2019 um, and, and then ultimately worked his way to a starting role. Um, he did miss a year of time along the way because of an injury, but he's been the starter the last two years at right guard. Uh, he was not rotated out at all in the Peach Bowl with J.B. Nelson coming off of an injury. So uh, warmly one to monitor, and, and we'll have all your player developments, whether it's portal-related or NFL draft decisions, here in the next few days. We've got a lot of stuff prepared for this, and Daniel led the way on that. But uh, it, I think we're about to rip the Band-Aid off in a big way because the next semester is going to start next Monday. So one way or the other, these decisions are going to go public, whether it comes from players themselves or just figuring out who's on the updated roster. Um, it's going to be really interesting to follow as it is uh, every year early in January. Before we step aside from this podcast, just wanted to give an opportunity, especially for you, Mark. Daniel and I spent a lot of time um, after the game in Atlanta, breaking down our takeaways uh, from the matchup itself, from the week, uh, Daniel and I are going to be piling on a, a leftovers uh, notes thread over at lines247.com. It's already well underway where we're sharing a lot of stuff out of our notebook that we didn't get a chance to report on from Atlanta, but we think that our, our readers are really going to appreciate. That's ongoing, but Mark, 
what do, what are your uh, some takeaways, whether it's the opt out debate or whether it's maybe some more lighthearted stuff that, that you encountered in Atlanta from this Penn State football team? Just a few things that maybe if we don't mention here on the podcast, we might never get around to mentioning. Yeah, I know I did my takes and I know that people kind of went both ways on on my uh, opinions about the opt outs. And I, I think hind, this is complete hindsight because it didn't it, it didn't occur to me until kind of after the game. But I think they're, they would be much better served to just try to get that news out as soon as possible after the, after the regular season. I don't think it did anybody any good to be waiting to hear what Olu was going to do and waiting to hear what Kalen King was going to do when uh, – maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think we all had kind of had a feeling for where it was going to go. But I just think if you want people to have realistic expectations – you know, I don't want to be hearing about moving pieces after you lose the game when you knew about those moving pieces before the game as the head coach, James Franklin, and you you wouldn't clue us into it. And, I mean, it was to the point where with Johnny Dixon, I mean, Johnny Dixon w- was on social media from Tampa three hours after the Michigan State game. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it wasn't – it was like a day or two after the Michigan State game. And I just think a level of transparency there would be better for everybody. For Listen, I get – do what's in the best interest of the players, but I don't think that served the players particularly well. And I know people could disagree with that, but I just think for everybody, you know, you're showing up, you're seeing guys at practice, you know, they're getting reps, they're doing this, they're doing that. And I just think if everybody knew kind of a couple weeks before the bowl game where people stood – you know, letting these things out piecemeal to, to, to me, as I look back and, and that's complete hindsight, I didn't think that before, but it just struck me that the day before the game, Lane Kiffin was saying how great Penn State handles these situations. And then you get to the game and there's Olu on the report uh, for, for being out. And yet he's warming up and everybody's confused. Nobody knows what's going on. I mean, I think we knew once he's on that report, you can't play. But fans don't necessarily know that. And there are people in the stadium who may not have read read the report. So I just think being clear on that would just be better for everybody. Um, the one thing that I think was overshadowed a little bit, just because there's an onslaught of coverage. I mean, I thought Theo Johnson's comments about Trey Wallace circling back to the wide receiver. I mean, to me, my antenna went up. I mean, I was like, that was pretty strong. Mark, Mark, I ran to my computer and wrote a story, so I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah, but and and not that that everybody didn't read the story, but you know what I'm saying. There's so much stuff going on that, I mean, for, for a veteran on that team, like at, by the, at that point, so for, for, for people who, who weren't following it, in, in case you missed it, and I'm going to paraphrase, help me out if I'm not getting it right. But, you know, Theo w- was saying that Trey Wallace was clearly their best receiver in the preseason, that he was cooking Kalen King in practice. And I think at that point, a lot of us just assumed, even keeping our ears to the ground, we had heard that he was playing well but not that he was receiver one. And I just think the more you think about that for a team leader and a strong leader, I mean, Theo Johnson, a strong leader, you know, here's a guy who went through some off field uh, stuff 
and he never backed away from the media. You know, he, 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 he encountered some difficult times and, you know, he never, he was always front and center and, and, and you, he may not have answered the question fully, or he may have said, I can't answer a question, but he was there all the time. And for him to kind of say that made me kind of reflect not only on Harrison Wallace, but that receiver room in general. Going circling back to what you said, Daniel, I think it was. You're coming out of, uh, you're going into the preseason, and you think that your three givens are the two transfers, Cephas and McLean, who who had played at that level, and 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 KLS, who finished last season just on an unbelievable note. And here you have a respected tight end saying, "No, no, the best receiver in the preseason." was Trey Wallace. I mean, and I think that kind of tells you a lot of what you need to know about that room. So I know I don't have a ton of stuff, but those were a couple of things uh, that, that, that kind of stood out to me. And uh, could I, I, I want to mention one other thing, Tyler, that, that you, yep. you mentioned. Keandre Lambert Smith has no obligation to answer questions from us. Zero. What he did have an obligation to do was represent his room as a team leader. So I go back to the Ohio State game, and they suffer a crushing loss. And who came out from that wide receiver room to represent the position? It was, it was Caden Saunders. I mean, so you have a guy, you have Caden Saunders coming out and granted, he had a couple of nice catches late in that game, but this this guy's going to be a leader in that room. Make no question about it. I think we all know what Caden Saunders is all about. Uh, and regardless of how much he plays, he has those leadership skills. So, no, you don't have to answer questions. But if you want to be a leader, you don't you don't have to answer them for us. If you want to be a team leader. That comes with the that that responsibility is part of it, and that's what I hope people understand. Nobody owes us anything. You owe your teammates something, and I know that the very best leaders that I've covered, and there were a lot of them, weren't the guys who showed up after wins. They're the guys who showed up after losses. Jahan Dotson showed up after every loss. You want to talk about a leader? That that's what a leader does. And you could go to a guy, uh, you know, I'll, I'll always remember Matt, McGl Matt McGloin after they lost to Florida in the bowl game. You know what? He came out and he was angry. He threw like five interceptions. He probably should have had nine interceptions in that game. He was terrible. And he came out with fire and vinegar after the, after the game and met the media and said what he had to say. And so that's where that responsibility lies. It's not to us. It's in representing your room. And, and and that's the one thing I just want to be really clear about. Yeah, I appreciate it. And um, I, I going back to what you said uh, from Theo Johnson, he did he did say it was it was clear that that they felt like most consistent and the number one receiver was Harrison Wallace. And you're right; those were big statements that that caught a lot of our attention uh, that day. And um, Daniel, um, I got a few things to add more about some stock up freshmen just coming out of Atlanta. But anything else to throw on the table before we say goodbye on this edition? Yeah, I mean, just just to go off of what Mark was was just talking about recently, like just quickly. I mean, I think that 
one thing too is that in terms of you know, the the access and availability discussion is a big one for another day to probably have off air but i think that these players you know in terms of representing themselves and and representing their teammates it's they're not really just talking to us i mean they're talking to the fans and i think that it gets to the point where the the fans get kind of sick of hearing it from us they get sick of hearing it from from James Franklin or Marcus Hagens they want to hear directly from the players and i think that there's a lot of benefit you know for these players and in, in communicating different things to the fans i mean on they did. wasn't there some communication after the game <laughs> to fans via twitter i don't know uh, I mean, yeah. that was the way it was it was determined by some people to handle it uh, and and they they decided not to communicate <laughs> what they decided to communicate on a one-sided platform and 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 uh, you know people can respond on that and maybe they put it on mute but there was some communication it was just via twitter yeah but they i don't think they necessarily realize some, that sometimes we can be that conduit and we can be the ones that can help deliver whatever message they want or however they want to and and whatnot but yeah, i just think about wednesday you see Everything going on with the Philadelphia Eagles. AJ Brown hasn't talked for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of questions about wide receivers, and he comes in, talks, leaves, and suddenly everyone just feels better about things. Like the collective, you know, I guess the temperature of the fan base probably dropped a little bit. That it was just a little, a little less frantic. And I think that that's something that you know can can help. You know, by talking after a game like that, by discussing your performance, um, you know, I think that there is a value um, in in speaking and standing at that locker, um, you know, and and really channeling that into some sort of message, um, you know, as opposed to not saying anything and then tweeting later or going about it in, in any sort of different way. Um, but, you know, I think that the guys that we talked to after the game, um, I thought that, you know, listening back to some of the audio, um, you know, I thought that KJ Winston and Tyler Warren at the podium were great. Um, you know, in the breakout rooms, I think that we had some some good conversations with with some of these players. But um, you know, I think that that's something that stands out from what Mark just said. And I also I think I agree with him on on some of this opt out stuff on getting this getting a clearer picture of what is going on. Um, I think not only you know maybe it does affect your your on field product because you don't necessarily have the competitive advantage of Ole Miss, you know, not knowing that Kalen King isn't going to play until two hours before game time or that Olu isn't going to play until two hours before game time. But I think that, you know, maybe in what you lose in your competitive advantage, you gain in perception. Um, it's another thing of kind of communicating to the fans, communicating to the observers, um, you know, that, you kind of the perception of your team can change. You know, it doesn't look like there's a ton of moving pieces. It doesn't look like that guys are kind of making these decisions at the last minute and that, uh, you know, someone's out there warming up and then he doesn't play. You know, I think that by I think kind of making it more clear before you get down to the bowl site, what you're dealing with, uh, you know, what you have, um, I think can be valuable. I think we saw that the Rose Bowl last year. Um, and I think that, Two years ago at the Outback Bowl, you know, we kind of saw it wasn't quite what we saw this week, but this week I think was a little bit closer to Outback Bowl than it was to Rose Bowl. Yeah, I said afterward the the tone from James Franklin and kind of where he went to with the moving parts made it seem as though he were let down by the ultimate results of 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 what was out there on the field for Penn State, but the way he spoke about it leading up to the game, you know, 
didn't really do him favors in terms of ending up with a 13 point loss in which you were trailing by 21 points in the second half. If we had known, you know, they're going to be some level of shorthanded, um, the, the way we talk about the matchup, the way we predict the matchup, the way we project the matchup changes, the way people digest the matchup externally changes. They're not viewing maybe Penn State as a four or five point favorite at that stage. And I think it, this is it's a really I want to make sure I walk the tightrope on this because I am not trying to put anything negative toward the guys who went out there and suited up and, and spoke with us in Atlanta. But I think it was a tough, difficult thing for people to digest watching the game, attending the game, covering the game. Um, to see how many second half sitouts there were, um, I, I, you know, I think we more got the sense in early December when guys were committing to playing in the game that they were committing to playing in the game, like Juice Scruggs did, like Brenton Strange did, like Jair Brown did, uh, that that they were committing to playing the entire game, and and then the hints started to pop up once we got down to Atlanta, and and Adiza really let the cat out of the bag at one point. Adiza Isaac and saying, you know, I'm planning on playing the first half. After that, it's probably going to be by year. And when it's a 2017 game that's highly contentious and, and has a lot of eyeballs on it, um, you know, it, it kind of shows that the plan, I think, was in place to remove these players from the contest. And you really do get a sense that one side of the equation, the 10-win team from the Big Ten East, was proceeding like this was an exhibition matchup. And then you got the sense from the other side of the equation, the 10-win team from the SEC, was trying to deliver a statement on a national platform and, and, and play four quarters. And I just think that James Franklin must have come to the end of this experience. And whether he thought it was going to turn out that way or not, and it was going to feel like that way, all due respect to the young players that were out there scraping and clawing and trying to do what they could, many of them were playing career-high snaps. Most of them hadn't played significant snaps in major Big Ten matchups, even regular Big Ten matchups. And all of a sudden, you're doing it against a top ten opponent in Ole Miss. And um, again, the the from the outside looking in, and and now you know from from us who are pretty close to the situation, it really did look like one team was game planning for an exhibition, not just not just approaching it on the fly as an exhibition, but game planning for it to be kind of an exhibition approach versus the other side that was ready to let the dogs out and ready to go four quarters to the wall. Um, so we talked about that in the post game show. Again, I don't want to, this is not me shortchanging Adisa, Curtis Jacobs, any of those guys, Caden Wallace, you know, you can go on down that list of guys who we saw early and didn't see. We saw Theo Johnson for a dozen snaps. He caught a touchdown during one of those. Many of these guys were key linchpin leaders on the team. I just think we all had the sense early in December when we first looked at this, that when people were committing to the game, they were committing to the entire game because it was a 2017 game in the first half. And then it was all missed the rest of the way. And I don't think you really need to have be good at math to figure out why exactly that happened. The, the personnel talent and the personnel experience and the personnel uh, accountability and track record just changed in a significant way versus what we saw through the first 12 games or 12 and a half games of this Penn State season. And we went for an hour on the postgame show with that, but it, it's difficult to ignore. And I think that's that's probably what has a lot of people scratching their heads about are they going to buy bowl tickets again when it's not a, a playoff matchup that involves Penn State, you know, being a game or two or three away from a national title matchup. Uh, so that's where we are. Uh, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, another kind of a jam-packed episode here with a lot to go on. By the time we get together for our next one, we're going to have more members of the Nittany Lions roster to talk about. Uh, a freshman class incoming next week. 16 players expected. You got some uh, some transfer additions as well. Julian Fleming being the headliner there. We'll see if anyone else is added to the mix in January. But 
Daniel, Mark, happy new year to you. Uh, happy to get off on, on a strong foot here with an hour and 15 minute episode to start off 2024. On happy our way to year. a million views this year. <laughs> That's right. Well, get thank, started. You for, thank you for all the listens and, and all the watches. Uh, we'll be back with another episode before you know it. For now, stepping aside on behalf of Mark and Daniel and Tyler Calvaruso, I'm Tyler Donahue. This has been the Lions 24-7 Podcast.